Hello, my friends. Welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm your host, Joanna LaFleur. This is season eight, episode eight. Today on the podcast, our guest is Lisa Sharon Harper, speaker, writer, activist, artist. And I love that she believes everything wrong really can be made right. Thank you so much to our sponsors who are making this episode possible. We're partnering with Compassion Canada in a whole new way. We've never done this before. The month of June, we are trying to raise $4,000 to help a church of just 40 people, this small, mighty church in Northern Thailand, who are trying to help serve 400 kids, youth, and their families. So more on that later. But if you want to check it out right now, compassion.ca slash WMD for Word Made Digital, compassion.ca slash WMD. Also, I've been involved with the Canadian Bible Society in launching a new podcast there called Scripture Untangled. Uh, if you love podcasts, I would love for you to check this one out. So more on that later as well. We're going to keep the conversations going as we always do in our Digital Church Facebook group. We'd love for you to join us. The link will be below, but just look up Digital Church on Facebook and you'll find our group. Um, it's lots of people having conversations asking questions, posting jobs, basically engaging the conversation around what does evangelism and discipleship look like in this digital age. And so um, find us there. We'd love for you to be part of the conversation. Okay, let me tell you a little more about Lisa Sharon Harper. She leads trainings that increase clergy and community leaders' capacity to organize people of faith toward a just world. She's a prolific speaker, writer, activist. She's the founder and president of freedomroad.us. You're going to hear more about that in the episode. And also she has been an author of many books. You've seen her work and her ideas in places like NPR, Al Jazeera America, Fox News, TV One. She's been in CNN, Sojourners, Huffington Post, Relevant Magazine. And actually even in 2015, the Huffington Post named her as one of 50 powerful women religious leaders to celebrate for International Women's Day. So pretty cool. I think you're going to enjoy and be challenged by the conversation with Lisa Sharon Harper. Whether you are hearing these ideas for the first time or have wrestled with them before, I think it's good to listen to someone who's bringing a conversation that we don't normally have and wrestle with what we agree, what we disagree with, and be challenged in our own thinking. So enjoy this conversation with her. Welcome to the Word Made Digital Podcast with Joanna LaFleur. Word Made Digital brings you interviews with Christian creatives and communicators to inspire, challenge, and equip you in your own work. The church has the best news in the world, so we want to help you be the best communicators in the world. Here we go. Lisa Sharon Harper, welcome to Word Made Digital. I'm really looking forward to the conversation today. Uh, if the pre-conversation before we record was of any indication, I think we're in for a great conversation. So welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. It's really great to be here, Joanna. And I look forward to being in conversation with you and your audience. Thank you. Hey, I, I mean, we've we've already uh, we've already talked about our pandemic p- puppies. And we have a few friends in common, but for, Uh and your words from your work, your writing, your voice as an audio book, you're in my head already. But for those Mm. who don't know Mm. you, um, can you please give like a bit of context, like your work, um, give us the, the bio on Lisa Sharon Harper. (laughs) 
Sure. Well, I've authored several books. I was actually started out as a playwright before I was uh, any kind of a public theologian, though I am that as well now. Um, I'd say that more than anything else, I'm a storyteller. And um, my, my call in life is to uh, shrink the gap between our narratives. And so mm. I do that um, in my writing. I do it also through consulting and training, um, designing pilgrimages and executing those pilgrimages across the world, actually helping people to, to dive in and soak in the stories of the oppressed uh, from their perspective so that we that and that just changes us there's no way we can be the same after having walked in the shoes of another and my own life was changed so so drastically by an, a, an experience of pilgrimage that that's become kind of one of the flagship things that we do um, in the organization that I started several years ago called Freedom Road um, you can find us at freedomroad.us a consulting group we do we have coaching cohorts and trainings in an institute um, but Mostly, um, that group is a consulting group. And so we work with large national and international nonprofits, helping them um, to be able to change their stories so that they can be more ready for the work that is necessary in the 21st century. Okay, so let's start there. Pilgrimage. Um, can ah, you tell us yes. about the pilgrimage? Um, mm -hmm. I mean, maybe you want to broadly, like, you know, where, where would you take me on a pilgrimage? Or maybe you would never take oh, me on yeah. a pilgrimage. Who are you taking? Where do you go? But, <laughs> but, it's, but it's also, I guess, uh, when I hear pilgrimage, the thing I think of is um, Muslims who go to Mecca or Christians or oh, Jews right. who go to Israel. So what do you oh, mean when you say that? Mm, yeah, that's a, ooh, that's a good point. Well, pilgrimage is, there's, well, I'll, I'll start with this. We, we like to say there's a difference between a trip, um, uh, a tour, and a pilgrimage. Mm -hmm. um, on a trip, it's all about the great pictures you get. You know, I stand, I stand in front of the Leaning Tower of Pisa and I hold it up, you know, that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. And, oh, look at me. I'm having a good time here. We're having a good time there. That's a trip, you know. Um, it also can be about fun memories, right? Um, a tour is usually about what you learn at the different places that you go to. It's about consuming information and becoming smarter as a result of the, of the places that you went. A pilgrimage, on the other hand, is about wholesale transformation. Hmm. It actually happens more than any place else in the in-between. It's between those different places that you've gone to. And, and it's everything. It's all parts of it. It's the conversations that you have with your, with your conversation partner on the bus. It's the conversations you have over dinner and, and, and with your roommate as you're about, you're trying to fall asleep about the day and all that happened in the course of it. And it's, it's the process of sitting and listening, um, to those that the oppression happened to or those who descend from those people or mm -hmm. experts that come from that community. Um, our pilgrimages at Freedom Road are always based in story. They're always tracing, um, a beginning, a middle, and a right now, and leading us toward to consider taking action on behalf of the ones who live on the underside of that story. So some of, the, I mean, the very first pilgrimage that Freedom Road ever did um, as, as an organization, as a, and it's a business, it's a, it's a, it's a fee-for-service business, it's not a non-for-profit. Um, but the first one we ever did was the Ruby Woo pilgrimage. And what we do is we retrace the story of women 
women's struggle for equality in America, mm. um, from the suffrage movement to right now. Um, and that one traces, it goes back to Seneca, it goes from Seneca Falls, New York, um, through New York City, down into Atlantic City, where we look at Fannie Lou Hamer and her amazing moment um, at the Democratic Convention in 1964. Um, and then we go down into Washington, D.C., and we actually end with an advocacy day where we're speaking to, to um, people on Capitol Hill about what we've learned on this pilgrimage and what we're calling mm. um, for policies, um, how we're calling policies to protect um, and secure um, the the integrity of the image of God in women. Um, another pilgrimage that we do is called the Gospel and the Politics of Race. And so that pilgrimage begins in Montgomery, Alabama at EJI, the Equal Justice Institute, um, and their Legacy Museum and National Monument for Peace and Justice. And then moves from there um, to Money, Mississippi, where Emmett Till was pulled from a field um, from, from his uncle's house, actually pulled from his bed in his uncle's house, um, right across the street from the place where he was fabled to have whistled at the white woman and wow. um, taken, put on the back of a pickup truck and eviscerated and lynched that night. Um, and then within a 30 mile radius of that spot, you also have the place where Fannie Lou Hamer um, was was raised and sharecropped and then organized for voting rights. And you also have the place where Stokely Carmichael raised his fist and said black power out loud for the first time um, in, in, in public and, and defined what that meant, what that mantra meant. And the place where he was then um, made, you know, at public enemy number one mm. because of that speech. Um, then we go to Memphis, Tennessee, where in Memphis um, we encounter the, the sanitation workers that were the people that Dr. King came to help when he was assassinated um, on April 4th, 1968. Um and then finally, we end in Ferguson, and Ferguson on at the spot where Michael Brown lost his life. Um, some would say was lynched because um, because he was a black man, or at the very least, he was killed by extradition, extrajudicial judgment of a um, of a law officer. Um, and and we ask the question: How does this all connect? And how does it connect to our faith? Right. Um, and what does it say? What does our faith have to say to it? And throughout the whole journey, we're asking the question of what is the good news here? What is the good news here? So pilgrimage changes us, and it really has changed those that have gone and been a part of it. This summer, we're, we we custom designed a pilgrimage, and we can do that as well. We did that for Trinity UCC, Trinity United Church of Christ up in Chicago, um, uh, the church of Doc, Reverend Dr. Otis Moss III. Um, and so we have 200 people coming on this wow. pilgrimage all at one time. <laughs> I know. Pray for us. Pray for us. It's going to be amazing. Um, it's going to be amazing. Yes, actually four buses that'll be kind yeah. of traveling after each other from amazing. place to place. Sorry. And um, and uh, and retracing the story of the entry the rise, the entry, the subjugation, and the rise of people of African descent on U.S. soil um, from slavery through Reconstruction, and all within 
the city and the surrounding area of Charleston, South Carolina. So, you know, and then there are other pilgrimages that we have been talking with international partners about one in South Africa, one in Australia. We were talking with the Tear Fund a few years ago about one in Australia, but um, price actually ended up becoming an issue. So we just put that one on hold. We'll see if that comes back around. If anybody wants to help fund it, please let us know. <laughs> but that's that's the kind of thing that we are helping people to experience experience on our pilgrimages. And so your most recent book, uh, Mm -hmm. Fortune, is about, I mean, whether literal or metaphorical, this pilgrimage you've been on of your own family history. And as you've said right from the start, Lisa, you're a a storyteller. And so Mm -hmm. you're using your own story um, to draw us into the bigger thing happening through the story. Yes. So- Tell us, why did you go about this work? Did you, has this been like, you've always been like a history nerd, you know, uh, it's <laughs> a recent passion. How did, how is this, mm-hmm. you know, what drew you into this? And, you know, I'd love to, of course, ultimately want to know what you've learned from it. Well, I think that there's something about being um, one of uh, someone who is of a people group that's been oppressed on particular land, Mm. because in order to understand who you are and how you fit into society today, you can't understand that unless you understand your family's history. How has your family moved and been moved over this land? Um, How did we get here from Africa? These are all the questions that I asked as a little girl. And in 1991, um, I, um, I I called my mom on the phone and I sat her down and it was after um, kind of having this moment where I realized I want to know more. And so I sat her down and I said, mom, tell me, tell me who are these people that you've been talking about? I want to see our family tree. So she literally helped me to trace the first family tree I ever traced on the back of a show bill (laughs) or really a show flyer because I was working off Broadway and it was a flyer for the show that we were working, I was working on. Um, And uh, and, I, and I don't even have the names. All I have is like, you know, grandpa lived this time at this place. Great grandpa lived at this time at this. And it was very patriarchal, only tracing the men, because that's how I was at the time. And I didn't realize this. Probably our, my family on both sides was pretty patriarchal. Um, and uh, And so I didn't realize that. But anyway, that's what I had. Now, 30 years later, I, you know, I think we have like 1,600 people mapped out on our family tree at this point. Yeah, exactly. And I'm working with a genealogist that has actually almost doubled the amount of people that I have um, just in the last year because she's been able to make connections through DNA matching. And she's incredible, like literally incredible DNA matching and, um, and documentations. And so, but that it's been that process has been a liberative one for me. It's been one that has helped me to understand in the core of my being who I am. And once you understand who you are, that's something nobody can take from you, no one. And for people of African descent in particular, and and in many other people groups, especially Native American, who've been removed from their land and some even removed from their people, um, uh, there is there is a confusion of identity that then um, can come in and has come in and actually wrecked havoc on families and on family patterns and on communities. And I, I, I'm just a very firm believer now after having done this this work for myself that I think that 
the, the result of colonization around the world has been disconnection. It has been not only the disconnection, of course, of the colonizer who leaves their land in order to go settle another land. So they are now disconnected from their own past and their own history. They forged this new identity called white um, on that colonized land. And that identity, whiteness, is what then gives them the right to own and to rule on that land. It's a political construct that literally was created to do exactly that. Um so now their identity is white. It's not German. It's not Lithuanian. It's not English. It's not French or Spanish or Portuguese. It's white. And, and because of that, it then gets disconnected. But the disconnection doesn't end there. Disconnection also, um, it permeates the lives and stories and generations of those who are oppressed, right. who are taken from their land, told you are now black because black means politically you were created in order to serve my wealth, my white wealth, to to protect it, to entrench it, and to build it. That's why I exist as a black person is to build white wealth. That's literally, literally what we were, what that category was created to um to uh to mark people who were created to create white wealth. Um and so now I'm disconnected from my people's story, from, from who we really are. So the process of, of finding um, our family stories, remembering them, as I talk about it in the book, um, bringing the members of the body back together so that it can be one body, one body of memory, um, uh, it is, it's a healing process. It's a generative process. It's a transformational process. I, and ultimately, I think it's a redemptive process. Yeah, well, you know, just even in, you know, as we speak, I'm speaking to you from Amsterdam. Uh, I, I've just, uh, my family background is here. So I just have spent a number of days connecting with some of my own family history. And as I'm hearing mm-hmm. you speak, one of, there's many, but one of the things that's standing out to me is this idea of like, I can because when a person moves by choice, the story mm. comes with them. So I have some yeah. context of where I come from mm. um, because I wasn't forcibly moved somewhere. Uh, it, yeah, that, that I, what, I can quickly go back to some context of my mm. story where you yeah. had to do so much work just for that. And even, Mm -hmm. I'm not even occurring to me really that even that, what is my ethnic heritage, the privilege I have of knowing what it is because of the power of someone deciding they would come to my country from Europe. Mm -hmm. And in your case, Mm -hmm. you're describing, you've had to actually, like even to the level of DNA, like what part, I assume you're, you're meaning things like which country in Africa did yeah. someone get get stolen from? Yeah, when I got my very first um, Ancestry.com DNA story back and it had the little pie chart, I yeah. wept hmm. because it was actually, and I think about this now, it was the very first time in my family's history for 500 years, for at least 440 years, which is the amount of time we've been on American soil, that we knew where we were from. And where is it? My God, all over the place. In fact, my, what my mom says is that our DNA is a map of the slave trade. Wow. 
That's really huh. what it is. It's a map of the slave trade. So, okay. but mainly um, on her line, and then I went, so I have to say also, I did African ancestry DNA, mm. and that traces the matrilineal line. So, mothers, 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 mother, back 1,000 years. So, what I know now, and it's also the most, the most specific. Um, what I know now is that my mother's mother's mother, so my mother, Sharon, her mother, Willa, all written about in the book, Willa's mother, Elizabeth, her mother, Martha, her mother, Leah, going back a thousand years, are from the Hausa people hmm. and the Yoruba people hmm. in Nigeria. Wow. So I know that because I did that DNA test. And so... They're northern and southern Nigeria mm-hmm. and um, from very, very specific groups. So Europa is one of the largest groups and that's where you have the griots, you know, the storytellers. There's much more in Yoruban um, country and uh, culture, but I really do believe we were we were among the storytellers in, in Yoruba culture and that's been passed down from generation to generation. And, and your then work. the house your life's work. It is my life's work. Yeah. And not only mine, but it's also my, my, you know, one of my sister's life's work. Mm. And my mom's, she's also a storyteller. So it just really does run on the family. Um, and then the house of people are all about fashion. They just love the, you know, they're all about the textiles. It's just beautiful, beautiful, beautiful huh. textiles. And they're horse people as well. And so now that makes sense of why when I got on that horse a few years ago, first time in my life, it just felt oddly familiar. You know, like, <laughs> how'd that happen? I've never been on a horse before and I'm pretty good at this. Whoa. You know, so they were horse people. And um, anyway, so, so there's, there's, there's that, but then there's a lot more. So it's not only Nigeria, it's also Mali um, comes up in my DNA story and um, Senegal. And depending on which one you're looking at, if you're looking at um, Ancestry.com, it's Mali. If you're looking at um, uh, uh, 23andMe, it's Senegal that comes up. But it's actually what I what I now know or believe is that it's actually that place where there, they all meet Guinea, Mali, Senegal, because Sambo Game, who is my eleven times great grandfather, um, he came from Senegal, hmm. and um, his name Sambo means second son, and it's a wolf name, and it's located in the south, southern, southeastern, really the eastern edge of Senegal, and in particular that southern corner where. Guinea and um, Senegal and Mali all meet. Wow! And so I believe that that's where that is coming from in my DNA. But when I I, I wept because every single one of those of those nations, those people groups, is a story. Yeah, and it's somebody who was forced into a jail, basically. A, the jail for people who were had been captured or sold into slavery that was usually underneath the church in the slave port in Ghana or Senegal or um, the Gambia where where um, Sambo was boarded and then um, branded and then forced to board a ship where they had to survive. Right. And so many um, didn't survive. In fact, many more didn't survive than actually did. And and they made it. And then they survived some more 
on this land for 340 years. And so here I am because we survived. But I would say that the, one of the things that has surprised me the most as I now you know, stand back from the work that I wrote is another story that's told throughout it that I didn't even realize I was telling. It was, it was kind of brought to my attention by one of the readers, Dr. Ruby Sales. She said, Lisa, the thing that's so unique about your story is that it's not only the story of subjugation. Your family found ways to fly in and through the oppression. You mm-hmm. found ways to fly over it and through it and in it um, and, and to, um, to always be about the work of helping the race, helping the people. And I, I didn't really realize that, but mm-hmm. it really is true. And it is, it's a driving drumbeat throughout every generation. Wow. So um, I'm grateful I'm grateful to have that now, um, now that the work, the writing work is, is um, complete. Pausing the conversation to talk to you about a justice issue and initiative that we really care about. We're partnering with Compassion in the month of June. Word Made Digital and Compassion are partnering to help a small but mighty church of just 40 members in Northern Thailand. This 40-person church has huge vision. 40 people who serve 400 children, youth, and their families, and they need $4,000 from us. Together, combined, if we would give uh, to help them build a sports and learning center. This is about generational impact in a community where people are living with extreme poverty, don't have all the opportunities, don't have um, a safe place to go, a place to grow, thrive, build confidence, get education in a meaningful way towards their future. So this church of just 40 members has a huge vision. 40 people serving 400 who need $4,000. And we're asking you, would you give $40? Compassion.ca slash WMD. Compassion.ca slash WMD. The link will be down in the show notes. We would love for you to give. We're going towards our goal now, but we aren't going to make it without your help. So please join and give today to make a huge impact for justice. about this idea of you know now as you've done this work I think that line is exactly where and how the world broke so yeah um, how did the world break you know I think in the Christian story we think well the world broke when they ate the fruit off the tree um, but right, what yeah. what does this what does this mean to you um, yeah. where and how did the world break because of course if we know where it happened we can then Mm-hmm. work forward. You can undo it. You can we unbreak can undo, it, right? We like can you can redeem. We can repair. You can bend to repair, right? Yeah. What was broken. That's exactly right. And that's exactly the question of the book. Mm. Um, well, you know, you can obviously trace it back to Genesis 3. That's when the world broke. But in a very concrete sense, right? So in a concrete sense, when you're looking at the history and the moment that race itself, the construct of race broke the world, you have to trace it back to the moment that Plato began to pontificate on this thing that he called race. And he mm. he said that different people groups are made of different metals. There's the gold people, the silver people, the copper people, and different metals determine how different people groups will serve society. He literally called it race. Um, and, and, you know, of course we know that's bad science. It's not really, there's 
no such thing as race. We know that now. Um, well, but and then there, and, and certainly and not it's debatable. made of metal, you know, there is right? metal yeah, no, is certainly causing our skin color. Yeah. Hello, somebody. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so, so, you know, it only took 10 years for it to go from, from that pontification, which actually then establishes race as the thing that is created to order society. Like, that's what we know. He may not have had hierarchy in mind, but he definitely, it was created to order society. Um, to say these people will serve society in this way and these people will serve society in that way. The gold people serve society in this way and so on. Well, 10 years later, his acolyte, um, Aristotle, um, pontificated in his book on politics. And he talked about um, the barbarians as a race. And he talked about how, um, how they were created to be subjugated. And he talked about if a people group, he actually said this, if a people group has been subjugated, it has proven that it was created um, to be enslaved, right? So, so there we begin to have the, 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 the slave class and the ruling class, right? That is, and it's not just a class as in like economic, it's like literally created by God to do, to be this thing. Um, and then you just flash forward about a thousand years and you get Pope Nicholas V. And Pope Nicholas V is really the true turning point in our, in our um, history because what he does is he has a family friend that comes to him and says, hey, Pope, I want to go exploring and I need a blessing. And he says, hey, I'll give you a blessing. And in fact, I'll do you one better. If you come across land um, where the people are not civilized or Christian, then you have the right to claim the land for the throne and enslave its people. So in that moment, in 1453, 54, 55, depending on who you're reading and what moment you're talking about in particular, um, in that moment, um, Pope Nicholas V established the foundations, the legal foundations, became legal foundations for what gives us the entire world as we know it today, the colonized world. The age of conquest begins then and there. And so it's with that... Sorry, just to pause just for a second. It's mm -hmm. interesting that you're bringing this point up because right now, mm -hmm. like today, mm -hmm. I read in the paper, there's a group of, in, it might not just be Canadians, but because I'm a Canadian, I'm reading the Canadian news, a group of indigenous Canadian people are right now meeting with the Pope in Rome about this very issue. Yes. And um, there's some optimism Wonderful. that he might you know, acknowledge, you know, say the I'm sorry's, whatever it is. However, the Pope says those things, the we were wrong. Let me we just say, said this, this let exact me just say, thing until, that you bring up. Oh yeah, exactly. I mean, because what it is, is it's the Romanist pontifex is the name of the, of the edict that Pope Nicholas V um, cried, you know, stated. And then that became the doctrine of discovery. And that became the legal foundations for the age of conquest. And it's why we have Canada. It's why we have the United States of America. It's, it's the legal foundations upon which the entire Caribbean was colonized. All of colonized Africa, Indonesia, Vietnam, Hong Kong, um, Australia, New Zealand, the world as we know it exists because of that edict um, and and others that followed. Um, so, you know, Terra Nullius is another one, right, that came down also by a pope. By a pope. So when you when you look at um, when, when I when I look at this this um, 
question of whether the Pope is going to at, um, acknowledge acknowledge the lie of that edict and acknowledge the bad theology. In my mind, until he does, the Pope is a liar. Hmm. Until he acknowledges the truth, he's a liar. Hmm. And until he actually repents of the sin of that lie, then he is party to and complicit with the, the destruction um, that came from it. He is a part of the problem until he acknowledges it and begins the process of repairing. And you can't begin that process until you tell the truth about it. He has to. He has to. It's time. It's, uh, it's only been, what, 500 years? Oh, my gosh. Yes. yes. Yeah, 2022. Here we sit. Well, it's actually since that edict, what, it's been... Almost a thousand years. Is that, I mean, that was edict it, was oh, okay. fourteen? I'm, I was reading about something today that was from the fifty about five hundred years ago. So maybe I'm referring to you know you're the oh you know what no you're right you're right you're right you're right because it was fourteen fifty two forgive okay. me yeah fourteen fifty two um, four fifty three rather mm-hmm. you know and that's where I think um, <laughs> you know when you talk about the word repair we're also talking about reparation mm-hmm. like money ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. You know what? It's like <laughs> how? How? I, I, I'm maybe at a loss for words because speaking. I think for a lot of people thinking like, how do you undo? How do you make a fix? You can't fix this. You know, even just well. I mean, well, sorry. I mean, who does it the, benefit? Who does it know, benefit to believe money, that? How much money could fix this? I don't think there is enough money to fix this. Oh, there is. So there yeah, absolutely so teach is. Me about this. Talk to us about this. Yeah. In fact, in 1967, um, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote a book called "Where Do We Go From Here." It was in in the shadow of the Watts riots that happened because of the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act, and then the subsequent walking back of that legislation um, by the by the next Congress. And and so the Watts riots broke out, and um, p- black folk were frustrated. And he said, "Where do we go from here?" And what he wrote in the very first chapter, he said. You know, he says, I was in a conversation with um, this high up muckety muck, you know, in the Federal Reserve um, or in some big economic institution in the U.S. And I was asking, you know, what would reparations take? And this guy actually said, he actually said, we have what it would take. It really wouldn't take that much. In fact, it would be doable and we wouldn't even hurt that much from it. Really? The only thing that that would need to be the, the case is that rich people would be willing to get rich a little slower. Ah. Oh. That's all that would be needed. How about okay. that? And he said, the only thing that's really needed is the will. And when you look at the, the case for reparations in America, the reality is, is that people of African descent are the only people group in America that have never had reparations given for the oppression that we experienced on this land, on a federal level, on a national level. Every other people group who have experienced a national oppression have experienced and has received national reparations, not African-Americans. Why? Why is that? Right. Well, maybe that's, you know, maybe that's, you know, again, my own, 
I'm not an economist, so I don't, I, you know, I don't know how the money works. Um, and maybe that's, um, here's the thing. The, the, let me, I mean, let me, that's let me just the driving, say. you know, as you're saying, actually the money is there. It's a, it's a will. It's issue. there. So, yeah. We could find trillions of dollars to pour into make, we made money in order to deal with COVID. We could do this. We, and we're fine. The economy didn't tank. There was no like, you know, oh, now it's all going down because we pumped up. No, no, no. People just, businesses stayed afloat. Um, you know, we, we're we able to do this. Um, and there are ways to pay for it that would not actually require um, everybody, you know, having to pack up and go home. That's not that's not the, the goal. And, you know, the, the question of whether or not, how do you undo it? You can't undo it. You can't undo it. And in fact, there are some things that just can't be repaired. Like there are people who have died who are not going to come back. There are communities that have been busted up either by Indian Native American removals, um, eminent domain, um, or just flat out massacres of whole communities and race riots in the 19, 1919s and teens and um, 1920s. I mean, in that you just, you can't get those things back, those people in those communities and that love back. And for those things that cannot be repaired, um, my book Fortune in the very last chapter calls for forgiveness. But remember, it's the last chapter that comes right after the chapter on reparations. And so reparation is, for first and foremost, it is about the repair of the relationship. The relationship between the group that oppressed and the group that was oppressed, the relationship between the government and the people it has been oppressing. It is the repair of those relationships. And one thing that we know is that in order to repair a relationship, you have to know when it broke. So I would say that the relationship broke the moment that that first explorer came with that edict in his hand to the coast of Africa, West Africa, and looked at the people and said, um, I hereby declare that according to our law, which you are somehow now a party to, um, I have the right to colonize this land and enslave your people. Like that's, that's the moment that the relationship broke. In the Why? name because of those some people, Christian good, in fact. Ironically, those people, according to the first page of the Bible, had the image of God in them. They were called and created with the call of God and the capacity to exercise dominion on land, according to the Bible. But they did not, they ignored that. And when the Pope gave that edict. He was not referencing the Bible. He was not referencing the first page of the Bible. He was referencing Aristotle, who said that if you you are um, shown to be created to be a slave, if you can be conquered. Right. Right? So, yeah. This is where, you know, when we talk about your book, uh, your your previous book about good news, the very good mm-hmm. gospel, and and what mm-hmm. I often say here at Word Made Digital is that the church we don't just have good news, we have the best news in the world. But yeah. often we make it sound like the worst news <laughs> in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, 
you know, what I'm trying to come around to, to, to get your take on is just, <laughs> it's always, it seems to be this hindsight thing that we do where we've taken the good news or, you know, the, <laughs> the loving intention of God in the world and we distort it. And, and it's in hindsight, typically that we say, oh, we made the mistake there or not just a mistake. Mistake is, is not the right word in this case, but we did I wrong understand. there. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think- We got this wrong. We got this wrong. Yeah. I think, you know, yeah. on all kinds of issues. And, and it makes yeah. me very sober in my thinking around social issues today that mm-hmm. are divisive. Um, because mm-hmm. we got it wrong before. And it just has been Mm -hmm. so damaging. You know, just like, why would anybody want this? It just sounds like, it doesn't sound like very good news. (laughs) It just Mm -hmm. all sounds like that, this church thing, you know, Mm -hmm. that we, we, you know, this in Jesus name thing that we do. Uh, Well, I think it's because of the whitification of the church. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about it. And the whitification of our faith. Yeah. Let's talk about that. I think, and, and what do I mean by that? What I mean is that, Jesus was brown-skinned, and Jesus was politically black within the Roman Empire. By politically black, I mean he was seen to be in a class of a people that was at the bottom rung of the hierarchy of human belonging within the Roman Empire as a subject of Rome, as a, as a, a colonized subject of Rome. Um, and so as a politically black man who was physically brown, operating within a people group that would have assented to the philosophy of Aristotle that believed if you've been conquered, then you have shown yourself to be created to be a slave. So within that context, you know, everybody who looks at him, um, whether it's Caesar or Herod, they're seeing somebody, they are seeing somebody they believe was created to be enslaved, right? Um, They, in that context, our brown Jesus stands in, in the synagogue in Luke 4 and says, I have come to free the oppressed. I have set, come to set the prisoner free. And guess who the prisoners were? When Jesus was born, the year that Jesus was born, 500 per day, 500 people were crucified per day by a general that came through town in order to squash a rebellion against Caesar. A lot of those prisoners were political prisoners. I've come to free the, the prisoners and to set the oppressed free. Who is he talking about there? In white churches, you often hear people say, I know I did. Um, he's talking about the, the spiritually oppressed. <laughs> that just makes me laugh now because they're not talking about the spiritually oppressed. He's talking about the oppressed oppressed as in he didn't, they didn't need to go outside of actual oppression to find oppression. They were oppressed people like as in crucified. Right. Every family metaf- in Northern Galilee would have known someone. Yeah. I'm sorry? It's not metaphorical. Yeah. No, it's not metaphorical it's at all. Yes, it is literal. In this case, I'm a literalist. I actually believe what the text is saying. Um, and and so, you know, when I when I say that the, that the word, our faith itself has been whitified, it's not just whitified, it's been colonized. You know, it was it was in the hands of brown colonized people. It was written by brown colonized people. Not one person who wrote this scripture was European. Not one. 
Not even Paul. Paul lived in Rome, but Paul was not European. He was a brown colonized man living in Rome. To have me to say that I am your, I am uh, European or you know white because I lived in New York City. That would be the equivalent of that. No, this is. I mean, it was a it was an empire, meaning it had all the people living in its capital city, and that's what Rome was to that empire. And in the same way, um, you have that here. So so. Paul, not one. And yet, when we get to Constantine, Constantine then takes the text, takes the faith, and places it in the hall of empire, and then interprets it from the halls of empire. From that point forward, empire then becomes the arbiter of what this brown colonized text means. So, of course, then, of course, we're going to get to the slave trade, and the text is not going to say anything about it. It's going to be mute. It's going to have nothing to say. Calvin, Switzerland, did not own slaves, but did finance the transatlantic slave trade. And Calvin, Switzerland, did not have anything in its, in its understanding of the gospel that made it stop doing that, that outlawed it. Right? Luther um, Luther's um, uh, Protestantism all over the map in Europe. And that Protestantism did not stop the slave trade, the transatlantic slave trade. There's something wrong with that when the, when the faith itself comes from brown colonized enslaved people. Right. Right. I so you. you see what I'm saying? Yeah. There's something wrong with that. Yeah. So so that's how that's how that happened. And that's how our faith has become so, so deeply distorted. So when young people say to me, you know, you know, how can you still call yourself Christian or even evangelical or, you know, how can you or, you know, Christianity is white man's room is like, oh, no, 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 no. Jesus was literally brown, Afro-Asiatic man. Literally, come from a people group that were kind of, they didn't have Asia and Africa back then. They didn't call themselves that. They just, this is the land he lived on. He was brown and he was subjugated by white European empire that racialized his people and said, you are therefore, because you have been subjugated now, you have shown yourself to be um, created to be enslaved. If you love podcasts, you must because you're listening to this one. I'm excited to tell you about Scripture Untangled. It's a podcast that's newly developed by the Canadian Bible Society. And you might even recognize a voice or two if you check out an episode because I'm involved in some of the podcast episodes. We know that the Bible can feel overwhelming, confusing, even just hard to believe. But Scripture Untangled brings you interviews with culture leaders, leaders in ministry, and Bible thinkers to inspire you to dive into the Bible and understand it. Season one is bringing you influential voices from across Canada and beyond, sharing the impact of scripture in their own lives, as well as how they have honestly wrestled with big and important questions of faith in Christ and the contents of scripture. Does that sound like something you're in the midst of right now? You're wrestling with scripture, content, what is the teaching of Jesus and how do we understand that in the Bible? So join us today as we untangle scripture together. You can subscribe and share wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, even even just in the last few weeks, I've been to Tanzania and to Kenya, and it was fascinating to see how many white Jesuses they had in their yes. depictions. 
It was white Jesus wow. everywhere. I was surprised. Oh, yeah. It was my first time uh, to the continent. And mm-hmm. so uh, I mm. assumed surely he wouldn't be white here. But no, he was. All, again, oh. it's all part of this colonization. And That's exactly right. It's internalized yeah. colonization. And Which is actually, yeah. in many ways, more dangerous mm. than even the original colonization. Mm. Because when it's in- enforced by the people themselves, it's that much harder mm. than to throw it off. Right. So, there's a few different ways we could go at this moment in the conversation. But, I, I mean, one of the big questions, mm. I think, as we're talking about these big ideas... And they can feel overwhelming. So then you just sort of shut off. You know, you just don't do anything. Mm -hmm. Uh, So what's at stake here at this moment? Mm. Oh, what a great question. What's at stake right now in the United States is our very democracy. In that same book by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, in the same chapter, actually, he says, that the segregationist, now today we would read white Christian nationalist, right? He says the segregationist would rather have a native or American, rather, form of fascism than democracy if democracy requires equality. And that is exactly what we are seeing and have seen for like the last five, six years in America, that those forces that he would have called segregationists back then that now we understand there it's now in the form of Christian white nationalism um, or white Christian nationalism rather that there's a there's a, a hatred actually a disdain for democracy because democracy means something very different when the land is all white hmm. right or, or vast majority white which is what it was back in 1950 but now now we have a, a fast diversifying America. And, um, and when your, your core identity is not who you actually are, but rather this racial construct that has been given to you, this thing called white that says that you were created in order to rule, you were created to be the ones who rule on this land. And now, though, you are now coming into a time in 23 years in America, in America's future, one generation, we are going to have a majority people of color, the United States of America. And very soon after that, the majority of people who are leading in America are going to be people of color. And so you see that coming. And if your core identity is not Christian, but rather white, then what you're going to do is you're going to fight like hell to keep your power because your entire identity is wrapped up in your power, wrapped up in your call to rule. You see? Mm. So what does it look like then? What does it require of us in order to um, to move forward, um, first we have to acknowledge that what is at stake is is our democracy. Um, literally, that group, Christian white Christian nationalists, are fighting democracy right now. There, nineteen states have passed um, voter suppression laws. Almost every state, forty eight states, tried to pass voter suppression laws over the last one year. Um, nineteen states actually did it. That's more than half of the states in America, or it's, no, it's not. It's about, it's almost half of the states in the United States of America. And so when you, when you look at, and then gerrymandering, I mean, all of these, especially purple states, the ones that are, that are contested states, they are, they are gerrymandering their maps, their, their voting districts 
um, into oblivion. You can't even recognize the state anymore, the communities, because of how they are carving up communities in order to um, to to cut the the influence to dilute the influence of people of color within their state so that they will white people will still be in the majority no matter where they live that is evil because what is it doing it is through the law through the structures doing exactly what jim crow did it is silencing muting um tying binding the hands of People made in the image of God, making it incapable, making them incapable of exercising God-given call and capacity to exercise stewardship of the land. Through the only thing, the most basic way we have in a democracy, which democracy is the vote. Is, yeah, the democracy itself is a lie if if yeah. it's you know messed around with to this degree that the yes. people have lost their voice. It's That's right. It's not democracy the, any longer. In the, fact, as the Pope lies, so does democracy. So does democracy. And in fact, um, it's literally becoming, it has it has the, the ability to very quickly, as in literally by the end of this year, the November vote that we have coming up in the United States of America is going to be the place where we make the decision. We're going to make our decision about our future this November, because this November we're going to be voting on the Senate and we're going to be voting on the House. And, um, and that's the place where legislation is made. That's the place. And, and if we give, if we give our Senate over to the GOP right now, I have nothing against the GOP inherently, but right now the GOP has become the party of authoritarian rule. They do not they are the ones working explicitly and openly so against democracy. So, and, and remember, this is not just out of the blue. It's not even because of a political ideology. It is in order to maintain racial and gender power, the power of white men. So, I mean... What, what, uh, I mean, what do you want the people, me, me, Joanna, Mm -hmm. and, Mm -hmm. and those listening, not all are, not all are American, you know, this is sort of Mm -hmm. a a bit more of a global audience. So, Mm -hmm. you know, in some ways, I guess you can address Americans and then also global audience. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, the way it's, some political scientists in Canada are writing, you know, they're talking about democracy in the U.S. crumbling by 2025. And these are, I'm not an expert. These are other people who are experts. Mm -hmm. And that's a take on the topic. And that will affect the global community. Oh, Um, well, yeah. That's not an American problem. That's a global thing. And so that's Mm -hmm. why I, I say all that to say, Lisa, as you speak, Although it's a global audience, what happens as goes the United States, so goes not the whole world, but so goes a lot of things. Much of in the, the world. world, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I think that what, look, I, I would be right there with those, with those uh, predictions if I did not believe in God. Um, but you see, I believe in God. <laughs> And, and actually, it is my family's story that you find in fortune that gives me the capacity to believe in God. Um, I believe that there is a God who intervenes 
And I believe that because I see how God intervened in the story of, um, of Leah. I, I see how she was born an enslaved person, but did not die one. She, um, in her, in her twenties actually was set free because of, uh, the, the, um, Emancipation Proclamation, and then the the outcome of the Civil War, and then the Thirteenth Amendment, which set all people of African descent free on American soil, um, and that was God. That was God. God intervening. I believe in God who intervene, intervened um, in order to bring about the women's suffrage movement, making it possible for women to vote in America when nobody thought that was possible. Um, women actually did have the right to vote in America until the Revolutionary War and then lost the right to vote, ironically, once America became America. The U.S. became the U.S. And um, and it wasn't until 1920 then that we gain, regained that right. But why? Because women of faith rose up and said no, no more to crushing and subjugating the image of God within me. I too am made in the image of God. I too am called to exercise stewardship of this world. And in a democracy, the most basic way to do that is through the vote. So give us the vote. Um, I am... I'm, I am here and I can bear witness to the power of God in the world to intervene because of the, the power of the civil rights movement. Again, powered by people of faith. My mom, a part of it. My dad, um, kind of a part of it. Like he was a photographer um, at that time. And, uh, and on also a young person, a teenager, uh, really in his 20s, investigating this, this, this civil rights thing. But this thing, this was something that changed not only the U.S., but the world. It gave us a category for what it looks like um, to begin to gain freedom within the democracy, not just having to overturn it, but actually transform it so that we could all um, uh, uh, receive the benefits of it. Um, I, 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 I would be right there with those predictions if it was not for the witness of my family and what my family witnessed in the world, mm. um, witnessed of God in the world. I believe in God and I believe God intervenes and I believe God intervenes through people of faith. And I believe that what it's going to take, the, the radical truth telling, the reparations, the forgiveness, it's going to require actual faith to do. So this is really, we are at a moment where we really have to choose. We have to choose. Do we want white power, power that comes from whiteness more than we want Jesus? That really is, that is the question. More than we want the power of the kingdom of God. I think I want to leave it there. I don't, I don't think I want to ask you another question. I think that's mm -hmm. the question we should end with. Mm -hmm. What do we want? It's like, it sounds, it, I'm, I'm imagining like, like, uh, <laughs> you know, Pontius Pilate with Jesus. Do you want Jesus mm -hmm. or Barabbas? What do you right. want? What do you want? What is it that you want? Because this want? is the year we get to choose. This year, mm. we choose. Mm. Uh, if people want 
to find your book. They want to find mm-hmm. your work. Uh, they want to go on pilgrimage. Mm-hmm. Uh, where do you want to send people today on the internet? Wonderful. Well, if you would like to go deeper, then come and join the conversation over at lisasharonharper.com. Um, and you can find all of my work there. You can basically connect with everything we're doing right there, lisasharonharper.com. You can find out directly about the book there, or you can just go to fortunebook.us, fortunebook.us. Um, or you can find out about how to do a pilgrimage or get consulting, get some training um, at freedomroad.us. So freedomroad.us. And I'm on all the socials, you know, Twitter, um, Instagram, Meta. <laughs> I always laugh when I say it because come on, somebody, please. Um, Facebook, you yeah. know, I'm on all the socials and you can find me pretty easily. Lisa S. Harper on Twitter and Instagram and Lisa Sharon Harper dot page. You should go to the page version, not just my profile, yeah. um, you know, on, on, on Meta, <laughs> on Facebook. Lisa. So, yeah. Uh, thank you. You know, a prophetic voice, uh, as you've said, a public theologian, but I also think um, uh, public theologians have um, often a little bit of a drier approach. So you're, a, you're, a, ah! <laughs> you know, you're, you are a, a prophetic voice, a storyteller, um, and you invite people higher. So thank you, Lisa, for your, mm. for your work. And, um, and I do hope that people go and uh, track you down. So of course, all this is going to be in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Joanna. God bless you. Lisa Sharon Harper, thank you so much for challenging us, for stretching my brain and for making me think about things from a new perspective. Um, next week on the podcast, we have Susie Gomez and uh, she's a friend of mine who's a preacher and a pastor, but she describes herself as a Korean by heritage, Canadian by birth, Mexican by marriage and American by immigration. So you're going to love this amazing woman and inspiring woman as she brings the conversation next week. Thank you to our sponsors, to Compassion Canada, as we work on this project together. We'd ask you to give $40 to help a church of 40 people who serve 400 people as we're raising money to build a sports and learning center with them this month. That's compassion.ca slash WMD. And of course, the link's in the show notes. Also, if you love podcasts, Scripture Untangled is the new podcast we'd love you to check out by the Canadian Bible Society, wherever you listen to podcasts, or of course, the link will be in the show notes. See you on our YouTube channel. We'll see you back here next week with Susie Gomez and we'll see you day to day on the Digital Church Facebook group where we're having all those conversations about the church in the digital age. How do we do and think about evangelism and discipleship? We're posting jobs, we're asking questions, we're sharing resources. We'd love to see you there and we'll see you next week with Susie Gomez on Word Made Digital. Thanks for listening to the Word Made Digital podcast with Joanna LaFleur. If you like this content, hit subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Rate it and share this episode with your friends. Head over to wordmadedigital.com for more free tools and helpful content for creatives and communicators. We love helping you communicate the best news in the world.